0: Hey Icon, Pastor Justin here, continuing in our series, Rest, God's Promise for Sinners and Sufferers, and we are in week five out of six, so one more week after this. This has been a great series. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I feel like rest is the thing that our bodies and in in fact our souls uh, have been longing for most in this season, and so I hope these messages have offered you a vision of rest uh, that is been a comfort to you. Today, we are in the book of Lamentations, and I have never preached from Lamentations before, so I'm very excited about that. So excited, in fact, that I wrote a really long sermon. So buckle up, grab some coffee, because we're going to be here for a while. I don't know if you have ever heard a sermon from Lamentations, but I want to give you a brief overview of the book, right? So Lamentations is five chapters long and it is poetry, Hebrew poetry. And one of the hallmarks of Hebrew poetry is the structure of it, that is highly structured poetry so that it is broken up into stanzas and the kind of the center of the center of the center is where you find the meaning of a poem and then it kind of goes out from there. And so there are again, five chapters in Lamentations, and those are five different laments, right? The first two chapters, the first two laments, and the last two laments are each 22 verses long. And then chapter three, the third lament is triple that. It is 66 verses long. And the middle then of that is verse 33. So Lamentations 333 is the center of the central lamentation. And again, in Hebrew poetry, that's super meaningful. Okay. So if you're ever seeing, reading Hebrew poetry, you can always go to the middle and kind of figure out, okay, this is the core idea. So then... You're asking yourself right now, what then is Lamentations 3.33? What is the center of this lament? And it's this. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is the central idea of Lamentations. Let me read it again. For he, who's he? God. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now, this is uh, you know an interesting statement, but we cannot understand the fullness of what likely Jeremiah, who probably wrote Lamentations, we're not totally sure about that, but likely Jeremiah was talking about when he wrote this sentence. We're going to see the context of it that actually makes this a pretty remarkable sentence. So, turn in your Bibles to Lamentation chapter three, verse one. Lamentations is kind of in the middle, maybe about 60% of the way into your Bible, in the Old Testament, and uh, we're going to take a look at this passage. So, I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. This is kind of the first section of the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. This dude is in a rough patch, right? This is a, a pretty brutal uh, description of Jeremiah's life, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is pretty, I mean, just over and over and over. He's like a, a bear waiting to devour me, like a lion in hiding. He has broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. I mean, this is a brutal section of scripture. And as I read it, I've got one main question question who is he because it says over and over and over he has done this he has made my flesh and my skin waste away he turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces he has made me desolate who is he because he sounds terrible the answer God he is God Jeremiah blames God for all that has happened to him And rightfully so. In fact, so should you. Here's what I hear as a pastor so many times. So many people blame God for the bad things that are happening in their lives. They blame God for the pain and suffering. And often I hear Christians try to talk them out of it. Right? Say, it's not God's fault that this happened to you. It's not God's fault that you made those choices. It's not God's fault that that person hurt you or wronged you. It's just free will gone awry. I disagree. I think it is God's fault. And I absolutely think you should blame God. In fact, I don't want to talk you out of blaming God. I want to talk you deeper into blaming God. That's what i'm gonna to do today in fact i have seven things it's gonna be a minute i have seven reasons why you should blame god for your pain and suffering and i'm going to encourage you to blame him even harder than you already have number one i want you to blame god because that means you believe in ideas like justice and injustice C.S. Lewis says this, My uh, argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I was calling it unjust? Unjust. If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying the, real, the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never have known it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. Right? So if there really is something like objective justice that you can therefore say, what's happening to me, this pain and suffering is unjust, I don't deserve it, then you must believe that there is such a thing as objective justice. And if you're blaming God for the pain and suffering and saying, God, you are being unjust, then you are also testifying to your belief that objective justice, objective right and wrong comes from God. Number two, I want you to blame God because that means you believe he is powerful enough to cause your pain. Think about it. Blaming something or someone implicitly admits that you think they are powerful enough to bring about whatever you are blaming them for. If you blame yourself or another person or society, you have likely massively oversold their power over your life. If you're going to blame anyone, blame God, who is at least powerful enough to have caused it in the first place. Number three, I want you to blame God because it means you believe he is sovereign over the universe. Again, the implicit argument here is that God is in control of everything, thus bringing about your unique pain because even though we feel as if we are at the center of the universe, we are in fact not. Hate to break it to you, you are not at the center of the universe. So with everything going on in this gigantic, crazy, overpopulated world, to blame God for one moment that happened to you testifies to your belief in his complete sovereignty, right? Think about that. All of the trillions and trillions of moments that are happening, interactions between people, that if you can say this one thing that happened to me is God's fault, God's responsibility, then you have to assume that God is therefore sovereign over all of those trillions of interactions, not that he has only chosen this one unique moment to act and therefore to be able to be blamed. Therefore you testify to your belief that God is sovereign over the universe. Number four, I want you to blame God because it means you believe he has some reason to bring about pain and suffering. Tim Keller says it this way, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways, right? Again, think about what you're saying. A God that powerful and that transcendent, so other, so so above all other things that he can act upon and be sovereign over all things, it, it, it goes without saying, it follows the logic to say if that's the kind of God you're testifying to because he has control, then it's also the kind of God that might have a reason for those things that perhaps you don't know, can't know, or at least don't yet know, okay? So that, that's kind of baked into that belief. That's, the, that, that's the, the, the implicit assumption of it, right? That he has a reason, there might be a reason. And even if you don't like the reason, you think it's a bad reason or an evil reason, it's still a reason. Number five. I want you to blame God because the idea that God brings about all suffering is more intellectually and emotionally satisfying than the alternatives, right? Think about the alternatives, right? So sometimes in the midst of our pain, we just lash out at God, blame God and and think, man, this is totally wrong and unjust and it shouldn't be this way. Okay, God shouldn't do these things. I shouldn't have to blame God. It's just, it just shouldn't be this way. This isn't the work the way the world's supposed to work. But consider the alternatives. Because often what I hear people say and do is to go from this is unjust and evil and this suffering is wrong to therefore I reject God. As if that simply rejecting God solves the problem of suffering and evil. Because you still have to solve that problem. And I actually think that the alternatives are way worse. Alternative number one. There is no God and therefore it's all random. This is an alternative that a lot of people go to. I have a very, very good friend who because of evil and suffering in the world has chosen to become an atheist, which just makes the situation still exactly as painful, but only more terrifyingly random. Think about it. If it's all, there is no God, it's all random, it's terrible because you have zero control and bad things can and will happen without purpose and without notice. Not only is that terrifying and emotionally unsatisfying, but it defies everything our meaning-making brains ache for. So you may not believe that God is in control or that there is a God at all, but let's not pretend saying it's all random that that somehow makes it better. In fact, it makes it far worse because anything could happen at any moment for no reason at all. And I don't see how that's a better way to live. Second, other religions. Well, they all basically blame you um, or the people around you. They call it karma, or when they blame other people, that can give us some sense of kind of short-term satisfaction, but in the end, uh, it it falls apart. Why? Because when you start to blame other people, in the process, you dehumanize them. They, They cease to be people, and they simply become bad guys, right? And here's the catch that we don't think about when we start to blame other people for our problems, that opens up the world of possibilities that we might be to blame for someone else's problems. And man, if there is anything I hate more than being blamed for other people's problems, I can't think of it. But that's what happens. That's the logical conclusion if if the, if the, 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 the response or the responsibility is purely horizontal, that it's either I'm to blame, which most major religions would say that I'm to blame, or that my neighbor is to blame, then it keeps everything happening here and eventually it comes back around to me because I am never going to be without fault. Third option, blame society. While that second option is often the kind of culturally conservative option, this major world religions kind of option, this third option is kind of the culturally liberal option. Blame a system, blame a group, blame a structure, call it immoral, inequitable, bigoted, or biased. Fight the system. Well, first, good luck with that. Systems are big and powerful for a reason. Second, systems don't have names and faces, so you end up chasing a ghost all while you're trying to exercise your own demons and heal your heart. This option makes for better tweets than cures. I'm sure there are other options, but this is probably enough for now. Blame God. That's your best option. Blame God. He has a name and a face. He is powerful and purposeful. Even if what you're dealing with hurts real bad, blame God. And there's a reason for it. You may hate the reason and disagree with it completely, but it's a reason. And it helps you begin to make sense of the world around you. Number six. I want you to blame God because if he is powerful enough to cause your pain, he is powerful enough to work it for some ultimate good. Right? I mean, this has to be implicit in your anger. If he is so strong that he can bring about all the pain that you blame him for, he is also powerful enough to make it right again. In fact, this is probably the most relatable part of this whole pain and suffering idea because there's not a person listening today who doesn't have something in their past that they look back on and go, in the moment, this was terrible. In the moment, it was painful. It was suffering to the greatest degree. And now, five years later, 10 years later, maybe six months later, maybe I can look back on that and go, yeah, it was painful, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Or maybe you can look back on it and say, yeah, it was painful, but I, but I, and, and I, might, I might want it to happen a different way, but I do love what it produced in me. Or you can at least look back and go, hey, I, I, I would trade that in a heartbeat. It was awful, and I don't ever want that to happen to me or anyone else, but I, I see the purpose in it. I see why it I see. I can imagine a reason for it. Everybody who's listening has that story, right? So, so all, all we're saying in the moment where we're angry and we're experiencing the pain and the suffering, all we're definitely saying is, I don't know the reason yet. Cause, cause you have a moment in your past where, where there was a good reason and you can see it and you go, okay, I, I get it. That was worth it. So why not this one? Why not? Why not yet? So any God who is powerful enough to bring about the suffering is also powerful enough to once again bring it about for good. Number seven, I want you to blame God because it just might drive you back to the scriptures to find out why it's happening. And and here's what you'd find here in our passage in Lamentations, verse 21, chapter 3. After saying all that he just said after laying out all this pain and suffering that likely, very likely exceeds anything that we could ever write about our own lives. Verse 21 says, But, anytime you got a lot of bad and then a but, that's a, that's a good sign. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. It's almost it's almost impossible to imagine what it is in those moments he could call to mind and that would bring him hope. If if this description even approaches reality, right? I mean, just think about what he's saying. Like in the midst of all this pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of my skin being torn from my bones, I can call something to mind that then gives me hope. What is it? Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. You think about now, at the very beginning of this message, I, I read for you Lamentations three thirty-three that he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And, and it, it, was, it was an interesting statement, perhaps, but now in the context of this, of 20 verses of Jeremiah going like, I, it, everything's the worst all the time. I've suffered to such, great, to such a great degree, but in those moments of intense suffering, I call something to mind. And that thing that I call to mind gives me hope. And then he tells us about the steadfast love of God. It it is almost impossible for me to imagine how he can say this in the moment. How can he call to mind the faithfulness of God, the steadfast love of God, while literally his his flesh is being torn from his bones? How can the man we just listened to lay out this bitterness and anger and pain Also call to mind these things. How can he hold in his mind at the same time these two ideas? That he blames God, rightly blames God for all this pain and suffering and can still at the same time say that God has steadfast love for him. How? Three things, I think, quickly. First, he lived in a culture that didn't presume a life of ease or prosperity. He didn't presume that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were inalienable rights. Life is suffering. The Princess Bride taught me that years ago. But this is not how we think anymore as a culture. We demand a quality of experience, even quality of outcomes in some cases and call it unfair, discriminatory, or even immoral when that doesn't play out. We have this presumption of success, a presumption of comfort. And so if even one of these 20 verses befell us, we would cry out to God and anyone who would listen on Twitter to say, man, the injustice of this everything's against me. The world is against me. This is not Jeremiah's worldview. He understands that life is suffering. Life is, is, is the suffering is implicit in it, is inherent in the experience of freedom, the experience of human interactions, that there is no sense in which we are owed prosperity, owed comfort, owed success in any of our pursuits. Second, he was humble enough to acknowledge that he doesn't know everything. He calls us to be patient, to sit in silence, to wait for God, to hope in him. Which means that Jeremiah doesn't assume that he knows exactly what he deserves or what should happen or why something is or isn't happening. He knows he isn't God, but God is. We assume that we should be able to see and know things and know why they happen. And and when we don't know those things, we either fill in our own reasons or assume there are none. All of this assumes that you are smart enough, omniscient enough to know why things are happening the way they are. And let me just be the first to tell you, you are not strong enough smart enough or omniscient enough to know why all things happen or what should happen or all this complicated web of trillions of human interactions are working together under the sovereign hand of God, you don't see it all. And when you cry out to God and shake your fist at him, you are implicitly saying, I should, it should be this way and I know it. Rather than blaming God simply say, by, by simply saying, God, you are t- the cause of this. You are to blame for this. And I don't know why, but I know you have done this in me. You have done this to me. Third, and most importantly, Jeremiah was convinced of the reality of verse 33. That he doesn't willingly afflict or grieve the children of men, right? There's an implicit statement in here and an explicit statement in that sentence. The the implicit statement is that God is entirely sovereign over all things and does in fact bring about affliction and grief. And at the very same time that there is an unwillingness in God to bring it about. Dane Ortland in the book Gentle and Lowly, which we're basing this series upon, says this. He says, here in Lamentations, the Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He is not reluctant about the ultimate good that it, is, that it is going to be brought about through that pain that indeed is why he is doing it. But something recoils within him at sending that affliction. The pain itself does not reflect his heart. If we are to follow closely and yield fully to scripture's testimony, we are walked into the breathtaking claim that there are some things that pour out of God more naturally than others. God is unswervingly just, but what is his disposition? What is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? Ortland says, if you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. It's not me, but him. If you catch God off guard, what leaps out most freely is blessing, the impulse to do good, the desire to swallow us up in joy. And the the scriptures speak to this, right? So Jeremiah says that God doesn't willingly afflict or grieve mankind. He does grieve and afflict mankind, but he doesn't do so willingly. In fact, in Jeremiah uh, chapter 32, verse 41, God says, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul, that God rejoices in blessing, rejoices in doing good, does it with all of his heart and soul, and yet unwillingly brings affliction and grief. Isaiah calls the judgment of God his strange work in Isaiah 28, 21 it says, for the Lord will rise up as on Mount Parazim, as in the Valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed and to work his work. Alien is his work. That the judgment and punishment and affliction and grief God pours out on people. He does so unwillingly, that it is his strange and alien work. It is not the primary thing that comes out of him. And I I absolutely love this concept. There is a, a tension in God where he goes, I hate to do this, but I will for your own good. He doesn't enjoy bringing pain and affliction, but he does enjoy its effects on us. So, does this tension in God bother you? It, it likely wouldn't if you were a parent. If you're a parent, you know the both and of this tension. I both hate to bring pain or judgment to my kids and yet more deeply hate the idea of them growing up to be selfish, self-centered, hedonistic people who care only for themselves and their own desires. Discipline is a short-term pain that achieves a long-term gain. So what does this mean? The judgment of God, our pain, suffering, and groaning is in the sovereign hands of a God who loves us so much that he will use any means, even pain and hardship, to bring about his desired ends in us, which is our good and his glory. Trials, tribulation, pain, suffering, consequences are to be weathered and even enjoyed. They have purpose and that purpose isn't simply punitive. It's actually primarily redemptive, which is why James in James chapter one tells us to count it all joy when we encounter trials and tribulations because of what God is doing in us through that pain. Now, in moments like this, you all don't really care that much about big picture philosophical arguments about evil in the world and pain and suffering. You don't. As much as you may say that as much as people might say that evil and suffering in the world are the reasons they don't believe in God, it's just not true. It's not pain and suffering that causes them not to believe in God. It's their pain and suffering that causes them to not believe in God. You want to know why God has caused a particular pain in your life. And if you can't figure out, you will blame whatever is convenient. So let me say here again what I said earlier. Blame Blame God, but blame it all the way down to the bottom. Tell him every ounce of how mad you are, how sad you are, how hurt you are. Tell him that you blame him for whatever happened, that he is responsible for bringing whatever pain, whatever suffering you are experiencing. Tell him all of it. Don't hold it back. He can take it. But don't stop it. It's God's fault and then walk away. Plumb the depths of your pain. Plumb the depths of your blame. Plumb it all the way down to the very bottom. Work out all of its implications. Say, God, I am angry at you. Even say, God, I hate you if that's what you feel. Say it to him. He can take it. He can take it. He alone is the only one who can take it. In fact, he can take it and make it good again. He's the only one who can do that. He's the only one who has. Only God has taken deep, deep evil and turned it into mankind's greatest joy. The cross is the moment where the credibility of God went on trial and he was acquitted. So give it to God. Blame him and see what happens. But make sure maybe years from now, when when now you look back and you wouldn't change a thing that happened to you, or at least when you can see the good that came of it, also give him credit. Also acknowledge the fact that he took that pain and miraculously, perhaps, redeemed it into something that made you who you are, that taught you something, that forced you to grow, whatever it is, and there's gonna be things that you never figure out. There's gonna be pain and suffering in your past, there's pain and suffering in your future, and uh, until you stand before God, you will not know why. With that, go to Him, ask Him, and you may not get an answer until eternity, but what you can trust, what you can believe, which you can go to sleep and rest well knowing is that God does not willingly grieve or afflict you. He will, but he doesn't do so willingly. He hates it, but he loves what it can do in you if you let it. The same way he walked to the cross, bore the grief and the pain and the suffering and the death so that we might have life. He can do that in you, and he will do that in you if you let him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you walked the path to the cross, endured pain and suffering, unimaginable pain and suffering in our place. Because, Lord, it it proves something that is hard for us to believe. It proves something. gives us an example of a thing. You walked before us down a path that we are all hesitant to walk. To joyfully walk the path of pain. It's a a scary path to walk because in our minds and our hearts, there is no guarantee of a good outcome on the back end. So we have to walk by faith. So, Lord may we cling to that image of the cross and the resurrection day, believing that that's the reflection truly of your desire, your power, and your love for us. And then may we walk that path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as always, we're going to transition to a time of response. and We do this in a few different ways band will come and we'll sing again in response to our great God. Uh, We'll take communion together, remembering his sacrifice and his victory over pain, suffering, Satan, sin, and death. Be emboldened by that. Be, Be filled with hope the way Jeremiah was when we can remember the steadfast love of God. We also give and Um, This is something that Christians do because we believe that God has given us everything that we have. And so we respond with generosity because we have a generous God. But before we do any of that, we're going to take a moment in silent reflection to think, pray, and meditate on what we've heard today. So let's do that now.